there are things to do um, that can only be done by us as individuals and us collectively is really kind of what I want to focus a bit more time on this morning. Because you see, the next part of the story, if you were to flip over the page from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Samuel 17, is one of the most famous stories, not just in the Bible, but in the world. Um, and it's, of course, David, the story of David and Goliath. You see, David's identity was established in the relatively secret place of his father's house. But it was announced to the world in the public arena and in battle. It was a battle that let everybody know who David really was. And um, the world is waiting for a demonstration of who Jesus really is. A lot of people think they know who Jesus is, but they don't. But we do. And the world is waiting for us to represent to them who he is. God is in you, and the world is waiting to meet God through you. And, and, and this, this kind of, this battle, this moment where, where David is, is, is kind of suddenly propelled from being, you know, a nobody. I mean, yes, he was anointed, and yes, God had picked him out and said, you know, he's, he's going to be the one. But but this battle is where he's brought from obscurity all of a sudden, just in this moment, he comes through into this place of prominence and significance. And that actually is something which has echoes in lots of other stories. You, know, you, think, of, you think of Joseph, you know, um, receiving the dream in his father's house. You know, that, that sense of kind of prophetic promise in that relatively modest location and then into obscurity in prison and suddenly the moment where he's revealed to be who he is. You think of Moses. You know, these, these, that time of obscurity in the wilderness and suddenly coming in to what God has for him. You think of Jesus himself, Jesus himself um, you know, announced as the Messiah, born in a stable, born in obscurity, and then suddenly coming through to that place of prominence. There's echoes of this story all the way through Scripture. In fact, there's echoes of, of this story of David Goliath all through culture. One of the things I love to do when I'm reading a book or watching a film is, is just try to see. This is, my, this is my basic theory, is that every story is basically the gospel. Even people who don't know anything about the gospel, even people who don't know, you know a thing about Jesus are, would say that they are total atheists. They pr produce stories 
that contain elements of the gospel in them. And one of the things I love to do is sit the cinema and annoy my wife by turning to her at key moments and saying, that's the gospel. <laughs> and this story of, of, uh, of David and Goliath, it's the gospel. It's, it's kind of the same story, really, um, as Jaws. Anyone seen Jaws, that great film? Now, let me, let me take, let, uh, go with me. <laughs> Some of you are unsure already. Let, let, let me make this clear. Jaws, right. Peaceful, peaceful town. Everybody loves eating their ice creams on the beach. Everyone having a good time. Then, a monster appears. Exactly. A monster appears. Just takes out a few swimmers. But that's all it needs to do because suddenly everybody is in fear. No one can go to the beach. No one can enjoy their ice creams. The whole town is in fear. And what happens? Well, from this group of fearful people, a champion arises, the police captain. And you know instinctively, you know how this story is going to end. But you keep watching it because you want to see it end. This, this police chief, he goes through some kind of wrestling, you know, can I do this? Can I really kill the shark? And he gets a group of friends together, gets on a boat, sails out to the horizon where he destroys Jaws, finally, in that moment, and frees the whole people from fear. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. It's exactly the same story that they told sitting around campfires, you know, in the dark ages, except they called it Beowulf. The same story. It's exactly the same story. And these are, cults, you know, these are written, stories written by people who have got nothing necessarily to do with Christianity. They didn't even know they were doing it. Why? Because in people, there's this yearning for a hero that will save them from fear. We're not going to read all of this story because it's very long. Um, I, ju- I realized that when I was preparing. I thought, this is longer than I remember it being. Maybe it was just I read it before. read it last in the children's edition. <laughs> but I'm just going to read a wee extract, um, as different extracts as I go along. But we're going to start in verse 2. Uh, verse, verse 2 of chapter 17. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 2. And Saul... And the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood in the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. I have no idea how tall that is, but let's say he's a big unit. Nine feet. Thank you, sir. He's a big unit. You know, he's, he would get a game for Scotland at rugby. Let's just say that. Second row. Um, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. 
The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, with bronze arm on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. You can almost hear. <laughs> and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Listen, the nature of giants, of all giants in all stories, is this. They make you afraid because they make you question who you are. They attack your identity. It's a deeper thing than to attack what you do or what you look like. Although some giants in the playground used to call me ginger nut. I know. But it's the nature of giants to attack your nature, the, the core of your being, your identity, who you are. And the purpose of this is to hold you in fear and crucially, in action, to get you to do nothing because you're afraid. Because you're afraid. You doubt whether or not what you do can really have any effect. That is what Goliath was all about. That is what Jaws was all about. That's what most of the movies about in Jaws. The police captain struggling, thinking, who am I really? Am I the... And his wife comes along and says, you are the police captain. There's that great bit in Lord of the, Lord of the Rings, just before the battle, when uh, Gimiel, I think he's, or Gamiel, I think his name is, um, says, uh, says to his, his armor bearer, just before the battle, he says, who am I? says, you are our king. Before he went into battle, King Theoden, sorry. Sorry. You're quite right. I was, I was going to check that with Alan Harrison this morning, but he's not here. I should have checked it with you. Um, but the point is this, before you go into a battle, that is the most important question. Who am I? Who am I really? Who are you really? Goliath asked them that question. He intimidated them. He made them question who they really were, the nature of who they were. And it kept them in fear 
and inaction. This has always been the enemy's trick, right from the beginning. Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Is he not really holding out on you? Are you not really? You're not really, are you, his beloved children? Really, he's holding out on you. The nature of giants make you doubt who you are and also who God is. And the purpose is to keep you in in action. Who is the only, who is the most important question in life? There's a great line, actually. We went to see Spider-Man last night. Brilliant film. I recommend it. And uh, there's a great line at the end of it where, where this, where Peter Parker's English teacher says this. There's really only one story that can be told, and the story is this. Who are you? And I thought, that's the gospel. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, and I turned to Lizzie and I told her, that, 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 that's the gospel. <laughs> Who are you? Think of your, think of your favorite story. What it's really about is who, who is this person? Who is the hero? Can they become who they're really supposed to be? Or will they just sink into obscurity? The question is who? You, the, this question of your life story is this. Who are you? Who are you really at core? And that's what giants do. They provoke this question. We need to be sure of it. Let's read on a wee bit more. From verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will even give him his daughter and make his house, father's house free in Israel. No more taxes. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for this man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be to he, um, to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, that's the eldest brother of David, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Interesting. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Have you made your bed? Basically, I know you're a presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Help my bob. Was it not but a word? And he turned away from them toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. The interesting thing is this, that David, while everybody else saw a giant 
as something to be afraid of. Now we're really in for it. We are finished. David saw an opportunity for a reward. He saw an opportunity when everybody else saw an opportunity for embarrassment and shame and defeat. He saw potential reward. The posture of an anointed generation is optimistic. If we're going to be this generation, we need to be optimistic. When struggles come our way and everybody else is thinking, man, do you know how you meet people like that? Well, well, I knew it. I knew it. I knew this would happen. Oh, you've done it now. You again. You do meet people like that. Who, when a difficulty arises, they immediately see the opportunity for embarrassment, shame, and defeat. David's mindset was different. He saw an opportunity for reward. He saw an opportunity for glory. I love Leif Hetland, who came to speak to us um, a few weeks ago. He said this, when I see darkness, I'm happy, because I am in the light business. <laughs> love that. He thinks there's an opportunity here. There is an opportunity for great reward, for great success. The purpose of a giant is to keep you from your destiny and from your reward. And that means that when a giant comes your way, there is an opportunity for you to encounter your destiny and encounter your reward. There's a great story, a couple of great stories um, uh, in the Gospel of John, which illustrate that this was also Jesus' perspective. Uh, Jesus met a guy um, uh, who was blind from birth. And while the other people were kind of squabbling about you know, why this guy was blind. You know, was it because his mom sinned? Was it because his dad sinned? Was it because he, well, he couldn't have sinned. He was blind from birth. And they were asking him these questions. Jesus said this, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. When they came to see Jesus about Lazarus, um, they told Lazarus he's sick, he's, he's dying. Jesus' answer was this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. His mindset was this, oh, you know, if, if, if people, had, you know, I don't know how you feel when people come to you and say, would you pray for me? But I'll, I'll level with you. I'm not always magnificently confident. And really the issue is, I don't really know at that core level who I am. Because if I did, and somebody came to me and said, would you pray for me? I would not be thinking, oh my goodness, 
Come on, Jesus, help me. I'd be seeing it as an opportunity. You know, some people, some footballers, you notice this in a penalty shootout, which we've just had at the European Championships. Some footballers make that long walk from the halfway line to the penalty box where they're going to take their penalty kick, and it is like the longest walk of their lives. They're just thinking, oh my God, how did I get into this? It's just, please, please, go in. <laughs> you know, they're almost weeping. You know, and I mean, these players are generally English. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. I mean, that, that is, that's just a statistical fact. <laughs> but some players, you can see, they have a different mindset. I remember Zidane, the great Zinedine Zidane, the great French footballer. I remember watching him take a penalty in the last minute of a, I think it was the semi-final of a, of a European Championship or a World Cup. And he put that ball down on the, uh, on the spot, and you just looked at his face, and you just thought, he's not going to miss this. There was nothing about him that said, it is even possible. I'm not even contemplating the fact that this could miss, because he knew who he was. He knew he was a blooming good footballer. And so he just calmly stepped up and slotted it into the top corner. He faced the giant, and he saw the opportunity for reward. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Exactly, Jail. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love it. But the second thing about this section, that, that last section that I read um, to you, is this, that that even though David had this perspective, what was clear was that nobody else did. You know, not even his brothers, you know, especially his brothers, people who were kind of close to him, who kind of grown up with him. You know, you'd have thought that they'd have been cheering him on, but in fact, they were not. And I want to say this about us, really. If we are going to kind of rise to all that I'm talking about, we need to build a culture in this church that really celebrates people who see opportunities for glory rather than celebrating the desire to keep people in their place. I mean, David was the youngest. He was the least likely. He was the one who, you know, should have been last up to slay the giant. But he was first. And, and, and there was, it's a, it's, there's a kind of surprise in that. And, and, and what it does is David's courage exposed the brother's fear. It made them look bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? It made them look like cowards because the, the, the youngest of them, the puniest of them, was the bravest. And so rather than thinking, you know, I, I, need to, I, need to, I can learn something from this guy, their solution was, okay, I look bad right now, so what we need to do is shut this guy up as quickly as possible. And the thing is this, that as we grow as a church, we will find giants being slayed by unlikely people. People that you don't necessarily expect. People that you've grown up with and you've thought, well, 
He's pretty puny. And suddenly they'll come in with a testimony of some guy getting out of a wheelchair in Buchanan Street. And that will, let, let, let me tell you, that will do something in your heart. One of the things it might do is you think, we do the same thing he does. I know him. He doesn't make his bed in the morning. He's rude to his parents. Or what we could do is we could celebrate that and we could say, listen, I need you to pray for me. One of the kind of slightly amazing things about being part of, of leading this church is that you kind of, you're regularly confronted with this reality. We have people in this church who are much braver than I am. People like, you know, these guys down here. You know, Bar- Barney Bridges. He tells some absolutely flipping amazing stories. Johnny Johnny McAdam. What a boy. Courageous man. Courageous man. And I think, God, I want that. I want their courage. I want to celebrate them and who they are because I want to be like that. Some of us have vision and courage and faith for all kinds of different things. And we need to get behind it. We need to, listen, we've got enough trouble from the enemy without making more trouble for each other in here. So let's read on a wee bit more. Verse 33. And David said, uh, sorry, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He's done it again. And he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took a la- and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. That'll, that always makes me laugh. Just think of a, you know, a lion with a, you know, a kind of ZZ top style beard. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Uh, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. You can see, he's kind of thinking, actually, do you know what? I think you could do it. He's suddenly become encouraged. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped the sword over his armor. He tried to go in, in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And so David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have, I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in, the, in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
The thing about this that really strikes me is that David won his public victory in exactly the same way he won his private victory. Have you noticed that? He won, he beat the lions and the bears the same way he beat Goliath. There wasn't a different strategy. There wasn't like he suddenly graduated to a new phase of military might. No, no. Saul tried to put his armor on him, and he could barely walk out the door with it. He knew that if he was going to do this, he would have to do it the same way that he had proved God all these times in his history. And so the question is this for us. What are the lions and the bears in our lives at this very moment? What are the difficulties in our lives at this very moment? Because I'll tell you what, they are there to train you. They are there so that you can prove God. You can prove his faithfulness in these little things. The difference between lions and bears and giants is that when you kill a lion or a bear, you save yourself. When you kill a giant, you save a whole nation. But God gives us these things so that we can prove them, so that we can grow in our faith, so that we can be trained. You will have things. I have things currently I won't name them now, but I have things, you have things in your life that are there, and they're there. Listen, God has put them there to train you. He's using them to train you. It's really important, this point about, um, about the armor. Saul attempting to put his armor on to David to go out and fight. I mean, I guess he was doing it with the best heart. I guess he was doing it because he thought, well, he's a plucky young guy. You know, he, he looks as though he's got a lot, you know, faith, but he's probably going to end up, you know, cat food. Um, so <laughs> we'll, give him the, we'll give him a sporting chance. We'll give him the best armor we have, which is mine. We'll put it on him. But, but the point is this, that, that you have weapons that you are developing right now or have developed in the past through the things that God has put you through. I'm exci- I look around this church, I'm excited because I think, man, look at, Look at the wisdom that is accrued, being accrued in this. I was chatting to Andy on the way in about having kids. He's got a few. He's been round the block before on that one. I have not. So, but, you know, two weeks' time we will be. So you kind of think, maybe I'll just ask a few questions here. (laughs) 
And the same is true right across this church, isn't it? There's wisdom, there's experience, there are weapons. There are weapons out there if you look for them. People who have proved God in different situations. And I love having the opportunity to ask people things, to sit with them, to say, actually, how, does, how did this work? How did you get through on this thing? But the fact is this, that you have your own weapons. And that is crucial because you have your own passions. You have your own visions. You have the things that you know that God has put in your heart to do. And he has trained you specifically for them. And he's not wasted anything. And you are never going to do the thing that God has given you to do if you don't do it with the weapons that he has fashioned in your hands through the experiences that he has put you through. We can, we can share wisdom, but in the end, it's your life, it's your experiences, it's the things that God has done with you that has prepared you to slay the giants that he wants you to slay. There's a lot of history with God in this room. And that means there are a lot of weapons that can kill giants. And so the last bit of the story is this from verse 44. The Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is like the greatest action movie moment of all time. I love it. You can almost feel the, the, you know, the stirring string soundtrack just rising. I love it. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, and that his, this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Amazing. What an amazing bit of the Bible. Victory is for the display of God's glory. That's what David says in verse 46. So I, I, want, you, I want you to know that in this church, you are free to run with your passions. You are free to run with what you have from God. Because what you have from God is for His glory. And actually, 
right at the end of the story, after David cuts the head off the giant, what happens is everybody else in the army who's been, you know, afraid till that point suddenly gets courage and runs forward and kills the Philistines. All these people who were afraid just five minutes before suddenly are given faith and courage. And listen, we need that happening in all different directions. But that will only happen if we kill the giants that God has given us to kill. Your victories are for God's glory. So you need to feel free to pursue them. I don't have the vision or necessarily the courage to do what you know God has put on your heart to do. But that's okay, because I don't need to do it. You do. And I'll join in. It'll be great. And that is true right across this church. There are giants, listen, there are giants, aren't there, all just marauding through Glasgow, all over the place. And, and they're there just, just, you know, flicking the bird, um, you know, sticking two fingers up not to put too fine a point on it, at, at the church. You look out there and you see all the kind of the social problems and the tragedy. And, and it, can, it makes you, it does make you question, you know, are we really who God says we are? And if the answer is yes, as I think we all believe it is, then it's time for some of these giants to fall, isn't it? It's time, for, it's time for each one of us to rise up in faith and do what God's given us to do. Believing we are who we say we are, who he says we are. There's only one story, and that is this. Who are you? Once you know that, you are unstoppable. Once you really, really know who you are, nothing, nothing can beat you. I don't know if you read um, the blogs that are written up on the website, but I recommend them. Uh, when people go away to a conference or something over the summer, Often they'll write up a bit about their experiences there. And right now, um, we've got a couple of people away. Mark Spicer, who leads our worship, an amazing man. He's away just now in, in Reading at their worship school. He's blogging about it. And uh, I was reading his blog um, the other day. And, and, and this is what he said. Um, and it's It's amazing. A man with so much history in God, a man with so much that I can learn from. Um, he says this, there's been teaching galore, huge amounts of information to process in all kinds of subjects. Teaching on singing in the spirit, very helpful. The horizontal effect of worship, life changing. The tabernacle of David and what it means. I need to go back over that one. On many aspects of songwriting and identity and intimacy to name but a few. But I want to comment on the latter. 
who we really, really believe we are. I've come to the conclusion that I've been saying one thing and living in the light of another. No, I can't take any credit for it. God has convinced me again and again. We, no, that should be I, mentally assent to the fact that we're sons, that we've been set free, that there's no condemnation. Yet my life doesn't truly bear the fruit of that. I still don't live in the good of sonship and all its privileges. I still live to some extent in the fear of man. I still beat myself up when I'm not perfect. I'm still not totally confident that when I pray for someone, they'll be healed, that he will supply all my needs according to his riches and so on. Oh my, I feel like I'm being picked to pieces, wrung out and then gently, gently brought into intimate encounters, restoring my soul and leading me in baby steps to freedom, slowly renewing my mind. We have the mind of Christ, yet so often I believe something which belies this. God's truth is a better truth than the reality we observe around us. We are recommended to go and set aside some time to get into God's presence and ask Him to show us the things we believe about Him that aren't true, and then ask Him what the truth is and the Scripture to back it up. A salutary exercise and one I'd recommend. I'm so aware that I need to hear God better, tune into his frequency more often, well, continually, and actually do what he asks. (laughs) I seem to be spending more and more time wrecked and undone before him as the school heads towards its conclusion. Man, I want him to pray for me when he comes back. But this is... This is where the rubber hits the road, folks. This. Really, truly, honestly. Not just, you know, intellectually thinking, yes, I am, objectively speaking, a child of God. But having encounters which renew our minds which transform us so that we actually, to the core of our being, really believe we are who he says we are. So why don't we stand? We've got a bit of time. And we're going to worship. And we're going to worship in an upbeat fashion. But I want you as you're doing that, in fact, even now, why don't we just open our hearts? Jesus said that the Holy, he's going to give us the Holy Spirit and he is going to lead us into all truth. There's only so much that I can do for you. God really needs to do the work here this morning. 
So why don't you open your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to renew my mind. I need you to convince me that actually this book of yours really is true. That I really am seated in heavenly places with Christ. That you really no longer call me a servant, but a friend. That you really have made me a son. And that as Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That that really is true. I am sent just as Jesus was sent. Holy Spirit, we need you. Come. Come and convince us, Lord. Come and get us past our fears. And get us to that place. Security before you. Come, Lord Jesus. Kuyarapa.